I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music, beefs, and feuds, and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And this is the first in a two-part series we're doing in honor of the life and artistry of Eddie Van Halen, who died on October 6, 2020, at the much-too-young age of 65. Ah, uh, oh, bummer, man. Still, so I know. Sad. So sad. And we're going we're gonna to take a look at the epic Van Halen saga and all the music and mayhem that came from his brilliance. Uh, you know, we just did an episode on Jimi Hendrix a few weeks back, and uh, so much of what we said about Jimi applies to Eddie. You know, he totally redefined what it meant to be a guitar player. He was a virtuoso who revolutionized the instrument and added so much to the musical vocabulary of rock and roll. What I love about Eddie Van Halen is that he was this virtuoso, genius-level player. He used all of his talent to make some of the most fun and infectious rock music of all time. He wasn't one of these like pretentious maestros making concept albums about like the human condition or <laughs> like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or something. He would play these sick, complicated, just amazing guitar riffs and put them into stoner dude anthems like Hot for Teacher. You know, he was just the best. Well, today we're going to start at the beginning and look at the David Lee Roth years. And then next week we'll tackle the, the Van Hagar era. I know everyone's looking forward to that. I'll be honest, you know, even though Sammy joined two years before I was born, I still have a problem accepting him over David Lee Roth. You know, I mean, to me, it's not fully Van Halen without Diamond Dave and his spandex and his hairspray and his karate kicks and his tantrums. I mean, he, he is the best to me. Look, I'll admit it right now. I owned 5150, OU812, and even for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge on cassette back in junior high. So I have some nostalgia for the Van Hagar years, which I guess I'm going to have to own up to in our next episode. But for now, yes, you're right. We're talking about prime era Van Halen here. So, of course, we have to delve into the David Lee Roth period. You know, the rivalry between Roth and Eddie Van Halen 
really is among the most contentious in rock history. Can I just say right now that, like, has any guitarist had to put up with more cases of lead singer disease than Eddie Van Halen? <laughs> I mean, he, he truly was a cursed individual wow, yeah. in this regard, and yet he was able to make so much amazing music anyway. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. It all starts, of course, with the Van Halens, elder brother Alex and Eddie. They were born in the Netherlands to a Dutch father and an Indonesian mother before moving to the United States as children. And their early years were really, really tough. Eddie would recall that they lived in one room together for a time after they arrived in Pasadena, and they would scour dumpsters looking for scrap metal to sell. Like, really, like, almost Dickensian stories of his childhood. Um, and they couldn't speak English when they first got here. So Alex and Eddie really could only talk to each other. And it fostered this real sense early on of sort of like us versus the outsiders. And I think this is a dynamic that's you know, followed through all through Van Halen's that really, you know, that was the twin access point where the brothers and everyone else, almost like a mafia family, like everyone else has to be sort of invited in. And it, yeah, it really, that was, it was a sense that was fostered early on just through the language barrier, really. And one of the few things that the Van Halen's brought to this country was a piano. And the brothers started taking lessons. And that was uh, Eddie's earliest musical experiences were uh, playing pieces by Bach and Mozart for his uh, tutor, but the amazing part was he couldn't really read music, so he would just pick it up by ear and just play it. And the teacher thought he was reading the music, but he was just actually just, just playing it because he was that good. So early on, he showed incredible talent. Now, the story I heard is that Alex was the one who originally started playing guitar, and I think Eddie was playing drums. But Eddie would always sneak into you know Alex's room, and he would start playing his guitar. And it became, I think, clear fairly early on that like Eddie Van Halen was the Eddie Van Halen, that this was like an incredible sort of natural talent that he had at playing the instrument. One thing I, I got to say, though, about Alex Van Halen is that I feel like he is often overlooked in the Van Halen story. Just because Eddie Van Halen was this revolutionary guitar player, people often don't take note of the fact that Alex Van Halen is really like one of the greatest drummers, I think, in the history of hard rock and, and metal. Like he's, oh, he's not a monster. Really, yeah, he's not really mentioned with like John Bonham and Keith Moon and all those greats. But I really think he ought to be. I mean, you know, there's a reason why Eddie loved to play with Alex. It's not just that they were brothers. Alex also had the talent to keep up with Eddie Van Halen. So I, I think when we talk about the power center of this band, yeah, Eddie was the man, but Alex is a very significant part of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that talent just ran right through the family. And the Van Halen's father, Jan, was a professional musician, and he played the clarinet and saxophone. And he's playing the clarinet part on the uh, Diver Down track, Big Bad Bill which is one of my favorite Van Halen songs because it's the song most likely to mis be mistaken for the uh, Antiques Roadshow theme. So I have, a, I have a soft spot for that. That's such a weird album. That's such a weird Diver album. down all over the place. So that, that's Jan on there. And so as, as Eddie and Alex got better, they formed a band with their dad and they played weddings and bar mitzvahs and local events and stuff like that. So they, that was a bond in the family early on music. But the other thing that was a bond early on was drinking. And according to the band's one-time manager, Noel Monk, and he wrote a book a couple of years back called Running With The Devil, Jan would share drinks with his teenage boys. And to quote uh, this book, he said, I'm talking about a guy getting shit-faced with his teenage boys and hope that the camaraderie of drinking would encourage honesty and transparency in their relationship. So early on, the two themes of Eddie's life are kind of established in childhood in the family home, music and drinking to sort of establish a connection. Yeah, you know, I don't want to uh, cast aspersions on someone else's parenting style, but yeah, I don't know if that was, that's yeah. a good idea to get uh, wasted with your kid. I, I feel like maybe you might be training them to become an alcoholic, which is what happened with uh, both Eddie and Alex. That's going to be an issue 
throughout the history of Van Halen. But, you know, Jan also was a very positive influence in terms of his sons pursuing music. And it was something that they did pretty early on in their life. Like by the mid 60s, they were playing in rock bands and they had very 60 sounding bands. We're talking about one band they were in was called the Broken Combs. (laughs) Another band was called the Trojan Rubber Company. Ooh, very glam metal sounding name. name. Exactly. And then they were, at at one point, they were known as Genesis. (laughs) And they were unaware that there was a British prog rock band fronted by Peter Gabriel, also known as Genesis. So they couldn't keep that name. And then they changed their name to Mammoth. And they played as Mammoth. Yeah, that's a very sort of 70s hard rock sounding name. Sounds like Mountain or something like that. And so they're playing around Los Angeles. And in the music scene, they end up running into a guy named David Lee Roth. Now, David Lee Roth was playing his own band. They were called the Red Ball Jets. Also great name. Because apparently, yeah, apparently David Lee Roth would always be chewing on Red Ball candies. And like, not that David Lee Roth needs any more (laughs) sugar in his life to give him energy. But apparently the sugar would just make him even like more hyperactive. And the reason why uh, the Van Halens ended up interacting with David Lee Roth is that David Lee Roth had his own PA. And they needed to rent a PA. So it wasn't really because he was a singer or anything. They just wanted his equipment. And after a while, they realized, well, if we just put this guy in our band, we don't have to pay to rent this PA anymore. So it's like, you know, get the PA and the lead singer comes for free. (laughs) Two for one deal. And like, I think this has happened in other rock bands. I think like Bill Wyman, for instance, like that's how we end up in the Rolling Stones. It was because he had a PA. I think there's other examples of that too. So it's like a common thing for drummers too. Because the drummers, like I know something like Pete Best, I think wound up in the Beatles for a while just because he had a drum kit, which was like an expensive item. Yeah, so like, you know, just buy equipment. You know, you don't have to be, you don't need any talent. (laughs) Save yourself some trouble down the road. (laughs) Yeah, just get a PA. Someone's going to put you in your band. And, like, chances are it's going to be the Rolling Stones or Van Halen. You know, you're going to end up at one or two of those kind of bands. So, you know, good advice for future musicians. And, you know, the thing about Dave, too, is that, you know, it it was really sort of a marriage of convenience, like you said. Like, they would say later on, I think it was a direct quote from Eddie, you know, we weren't what you call conventional friends, you know. It was just something that, you know, it it worked for us. There was So there was never really, I think— a real camaraderie between them on a personal level. And their backgrounds were so, so different. I mean, you know, I mentioned the Van Halens living in one room and looking for scrap metal and dumpsters. Dave's background was his father was this wealthy eye surgeon who basically bankrolled his son's ambitions to be a rock star, which is why he had this incredible PA. And, you know, he couldn't really, at least at that era, and some people, Sammy Hagar fans maybe, would say, you know, he couldn't ever really sing that well. But he was just such a master in the whole art of, like, fake it till you make it. I mean, just, like, look at his outfits. Uh, and it was clear that, you know, joining up with the Van Halen brothers worked for both of them, you know? It was just something that worked, and I don't think that they ever really were friends. Yeah, you know, I've obviously I was listening to a lot of Van Halen music getting ready uh, for these episodes. And it occurred to me that, like, what David Lee Roth is doing on those records, it's not so much singing. It's almost like a kind of combination of like talking and rapping Mm. yeah he doesn't have the sort of conventional voice like in the way that sammy hagar did for instance sammy hagar is like the epitome of like the journeyman rock singer of the 70s and 80s whereas david lee roth he couldn't really sing but it's like it was kind of better than being a singer because what he brought was totally unique and like it could not be replicated by anybody i never really maybe this is a a common observation but i never realized how much he sounded like animal from the muppets until (laughs) re-listening to a lot of their stuff for a while there right exactly it's a lot of just like scatting and like and bullshitting essentially and it but it totally works what's fascinating to me about like van halen's early days is that it was david lee roth's idea to change their name from mammoth to van halen and 
on one point, it's like Van Halen is like a cool sounding name. Like it is a name like Santana, for instance, where, yeah, you can name your band after the last name of the guitar player because it's just a cool sounding last name. Like if we were in a band, probably aren't going to call it Haydn or Runta, you know, not really. Neither one of those are cool sounding names, but Van Halen was definitely cool. But what that ended up doing, perhaps inadvertently, is that it seems like it permanently put the power center of the band with Eddie and Alex. Because obviously you can't have a band called Van Halen without any of the Van Halens. So that us versus them mentality that you were talking about earlier, it's just sort of reiterated with the band name. It's like, okay, you're either a Van Halen or you're not. And David Lee Roth <laughs> clearly was not a Van Halen. I got to give a shout out to this great book I read a few years ago called Van Halen Rising. It's by a guy named Greg Renoff. And it covers Van Halen's career right up until the point uh, before they recorded their first album. So it is, as the title suggests, it's about their rise to uh, prominence. And as much as it is a story about Van Halen, it's really like about Southern California in the mid-70s. And like one thing that that part of the country had going that a lot of places didn't is this thriving backyard party scene. Like you would go to someone's house and it wouldn't just be like a dozen people at a barbecue. It'd be like hundreds of kids at these parties and they would book bands. And Van Halen ended up being one of the most popular bands on the circuit. So along with playing rock clubs, they're playing these backyard parties. And David Lee Roth would talk about this later, about how he felt that Van Halen was able to be successful because in Southern California, they had to play for so many different kinds of audiences. One night, they might be playing for surfer dudes. The next night, it might be for like hard drinking working men in the valley. The next night, it might be for a predominantly Mexican audience. You know, and he just felt like, yeah, we were a hard rock band. So, you know, they would play Aerosmith covers and ZZ Top covers, but then they would also do like Stevie Wonder covers and they would do Casey Casey and the Sunshine Band and stuff. Exactly. So it was melding all these different influences still under a hard rock banner, but they were much more eclectic than a lot of hard rock bands of that time. What a cool way to come up too. Like I know we have like house shows and stuff now, but like having like a backyard party, like, oh, yeah. you know, like can't hardly wait style or like dazed and confused or something like going to like a kegger with your friends and the backyard Van Halen's playing there. Like, come on. I that's know. Amazing. Exactly. That's why I love that book. It's like the real life version of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like when you oh, read yeah. that book, it's like, <laughs> it's such a cool vibe. And just imagining, yeah, like being in that kind of scene with Van Halen in like 1975. It just sounds totally awesome. So they're playing these backyard parties and they're they're really like drumming up buzz by going to like local high schools and passing out flyers and stuff to come see their band. Like they really have like a cool grassroots campaign going. And they get a residency at a club in the Sunset Strip called uh, Gazari's, which is like a legendary club in L.A., and uh, they eventually link up with uh, bassist Michael Anthony, who's playing in a support act called Snake. Uh, I guess, I think David Lee Roth's PA system died one night on stage and they had to borrow like their opening acts and it happened to be Snake and Michael Anthony. And that was how, uh, how he got into the band. So it's interesting how David Lee Roth got into the band because he was renting him a PA. Michael Anthony got into the band because he just let them use this PA. Like that, just, <laughs> that, that speaks so much about how Michael Anthony is just one of the nicest guys. And he or, definitely doesn't or, deserve what's coming. Or it speaks to how the Van Halen brothers just love PAs. You know, it's like, <laughs> if you have a PA, the Van Halen brothers are like, you're in our band. We're there. You know, any, yeah. <laughs> any, even if you are just sort of like adjacent to a PA, you can be in our band. <laughs> so it's uh, 1976 and Gene Simmons Catch is one of their shows. And I heard a rumor that it was with an eye to, to recruit Eddie into Kiss. I don't know how true that is, but that would be an interesting tangent in an alternate universe rock history if Eddie wound up in Kiss. But uh, Gene is so impressed with the group, and he uh, he goes and records a demo with them, brings it to Kiss management to try to get people excited. 
They're not excited. I think the quote was, they don't stand a chance. That's what they said about Van Halen. Uh, Gene wanted to try to help them by asking them to change their names to the Daddy Longlegs, which is <laughs> decent band name. Not as good as Van Halen. Definitely not as good as um, as Mammoth. But uh, okay. Yeah, it's very specific to like 1976, I feel like, right, that band yeah. name. Uh, so eventually, uh, Warner Brothers record producer Ted Templeman caught another one of their shows and signed them to a contract. Uh, they released a revamped version of The Kinks, You Really Got Me, which got some national attention. Uh, but this was nothing compared to the release of their self-titled debut in February 78, which almost immediately, I think, went platinum and just established them as a huge force. I mean, the album went on to sell like 12 million copies. I mean, what can you say about it? One of the truly, one of the best rock debuts in history. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Atomic Punk, Little Dreamer, Eruption, of course. I mean, good Lord. Yeah, that album is like a greatest hits album. It's their debut, but like you know every song. Like pretty much every song on that record has been played to death on FM radio. I gotta say, I'm personally a big fan of Ice Cream Man. I just wanna say that now, which maybe will see me siding more with Roth in this episode, because I I'm into his whole like almost like vaudevillian thing. Oh yeah, I love Ice Cream Man as well. And in a way, like you can look at that song as like the perfect synthesis of Roth and Van Halen, where it starts out and Roth is doing his like, you know, like scat singing. Shtick. You know, shtick. And then it just totally rocks at the end. Like Eddie just bursts into the song and takes it off. And it's like, oh, this is what was so great about Van Halen. You know, that they could start in this goofy place, but also make it feel real and authentic at the same time. And I think that like what set Van Halen apart, like really from the beginning of their career and certainly during the Roth years is that they were the first metal band that I think non-metal heads could love. You know, there was just mm. something so, like, friendly and, like, inviting about them. Like, you think about that song, Running With The Devil. Like, if Black Sabbath did a song called Running With The Devil, it would actually be about <laughs> running with the devil. Like, it would be about evil. It would be foreboding. Like, you would have nightmares after hearing that song. Whereas when Van Halen does it, it's like, we're doing it metaphorically. You know, we're raising hell in a fun way. You know, we're going to blow the doors off a Friday night. You know, like, let's party. Let's have a good time. Let's all get together. You know, and I know David Lee Roth, he's often talked about how he felt that Van Halen was a band for everybody. You know, that they weren't uh, snobs in any way. They welcomed everyone into their tent. And I think Eddie Van Halen, certainly at the beginning, I think he was on the same page with that. You know, I think he also wanted Van Halen to have that kind of broad appeal. But I think as the years went on, it does seem like there was like a musical split between Roth and Eddie in terms of where they were going to go musically. It, I think David Lee Roth was very much a guy who put a premium on poppiness and danceability. Whereas Eddie Van Halen, again, he's this extremely talented guitar player. You know, he wants to start doing maybe some more sophisticated music, stuff that's a little more complicated, and he really felt stifled. One thing that I think is interesting about early Van Halen is that there was this battle long before 1984, their, you know, that huge album would jump on it. There was this battle between David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen about synthesizers. Because, like, Eddie Van Halen actually, like, he would talk about how he wrote a lot of his guitar parts on piano and then, you know, transcribed them to guitar. And he wants insane. It's crazy that he did that, but like he, he loved piano. He wanted to play synths like fairly early on in the band. And David Lee Roth would always veto it. And yet at the same time, David Lee Roth was also the pop guy. I just wonder like what the thinking was there. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, it's not as simple as like you get like a Beach Boys thing with with Brian Wilson wanting to make these kind of deep, dark orchestral like mood pieces. And then you've got Mike Love being like, no, 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 like let's get people dance. We're a party band. Like it's not that simple at all with this. I mean, it's crazy how, and we'll get to this later on, like, you know, they didn't like jump. 
It's like Eddie's like, hey, I'm I'm trying to make you the best, most poppy, accessible dance track I can. Like how like I'm I'm not making something that's like hard to grasp here. If anything, it's it's more simple than what we were doing. Yeah, that dynamic is really interesting to me. I mean, I think the other thing that's going on here, I mean, maybe at heart, it isn't even so much about poppiness versus sophistication. It's really just like a power struggle, like who's going to be in control of the band. And really around, you know, I guess like 1980 or so, it really seems like, you know, the lead singer disease syndrome is really kicking in with David Lee Roth. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was a story, I think it was in Greg Ranoff's book about uh, the Women and Children First cover. And uh, David Lee Roth wanted to hire the legendary fashion photographer Helmut Newton to do these like glamorous cover shots. And uh, I guess he and Helmut hit it off. I think they were at like a pool at like the Beverly Hills Hotel or some like glamorous pool. And they they met and Helmut said, you're my new favorite blonde. He was really taken by Roth. <laughs> so they end up having a photography session at uh, David Lee Roth's house with, with Helmut. And Helmut's just getting all these close-up shots of Dave. And there's a, a really famous shot. I think one of the only shots that actually was published from that session is David uh, shirtless with his hands uh, chained above his head in this like strange Christ-like pose by like a cyclone fence. Oh man, uh, that's fine so, art. That's fine art yeah. right there. And the other band members are like, we're a band. Like, first of all, we're paying way too much money to this guy. I mean, this is way out of our art budget to hire this like, you know, legendary fashion photographer. And also, he's just purely focusing on Dave. And some of the outtakes you see from the session that day, you look at Eddie and Alex, and they look just irate. They look miserable. I mean, it's obvious that, like, this photographer really thinks that Dave is the guy and everyone else is uh, expendable. So there's a huge fight about this. And the brothers really think, you know, this is Dave's effort to try to hijack the band's image for this new album just to serve his own artistic. So those photographs were uh, were junked, basically. And they reached a compromise by hiring the photographer Norman Seif, who I guess has a talent for uh, making fractured bands look like friends. <laughs> and, uh, and he succeeded really admirably on the cover of the album. I mean, you look, I mean, it looks like, you know, the flag raising at Iwo Jima or something. They're all like, all, all banded together. It's a great cover. Yeah. Uh, they look like a gang inside, on the cover. Right. Yeah. It's an awesome cover. And then inside is the poster of Roth with his, you know, Christ in chains pose as like a special gift for fans. And I thought that was like a really perfect metaphor for the band at this time. You know, there's like a deceptive shot that presents on the cover that presents Van Halen as this unified group. But then lurking on the inside is this outrageous solo glamour shot of Diamond Dave. I feel like that's sort of like that really sets up what's to come. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So if you have your rock and roll bingo card... And you're charting <laughs> when bands start to go wrong. I feel like arguments over album covers is like a serious red flag. You know, that yep. would be like at the center of the bingo card. Uh, but of course, in Van Halen, these differences are also starting to manifest themselves musically. And I think you can really see that on the next two Van Halen records. The one after Women and Children First is Fair Warning. It comes out in 1981. And I think it's fair to say that Fair Warning is like the Van Halen aficionado's favorite Van Halen album. You know, like this is the one where there are hits on it, like Unchained is on that record, and so this is love. Oh, yeah. But unlike, you know, like the first couple Van Halen records, like there's not a lot of radio standards on Fair Warning. It's more about just this sort of dark and dirty, intense rock music. Really, like, I think the darkest music Van Halen made during the David Lee Roth era, you know, thinking of songs like Sinner's Swing and like Dirty Movies, and of course, like Mean Street, the leadoff track, which is like, I think, one of the greatest Van Halen songs. And I think of Fair Warning as being like a total Eddie Van Halen record. It just feels like it has his fingerprints all over it. Wonderful guitar parts on it. It seems like, again, it's more about the music, not about the image. David Lee Roth isn't like scatting as much on that record. You know, he's not <laughs> doing the shtick as much. I mean, obviously Unchained has some of that. I guess the popular moments that people remember have that. But it's really like, it's almost like social commentary on that album, which you don't associate with David Lee Roth era Van Halen, but there's a real serious to, to fair warning that I think, again, feels more in line with Eddie Van Halen. And then you have Diver Down, the next record, comes out in 1982. And that record is preceded by uh, a single, it's a cover of Pretty Woman, the Roy Orbison song. And again, this is hearkening back to the early days of Van Halen when they really broke themselves by doing hard rock covers of 60s songs. You know, You Really Got Me, of course, from the first record being the most obvious example. And Diver Down ends up being this record that's like half covers and like half originals. You know, we, we we mentioned that song Big Bad Bill, which is almost like a novelty number for Van Halen. And it seems very much like a David Lee Roth 
type record. And I know like Eddie and Alex have both gone on record in subsequent years as saying that like Diver Down was not a record they really liked. And I would say that for me, it's like easily the weakest of the David Lee Roth era records. It's still a lot of fun and I appreciate the humor of it. But I think you can see there pretty clearly that like Eddie Van Halen saw the band in a certain kind of way that was really starting to clash with the way David Lee Roth saw it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that album, they really even wanted to do it because they just gotten off the Fair Warning tour and they were tired and they wanted to take a break. And they put out the Roy Orbison cover just as sort of like a stopgap because Ted Templeman loved doing those covers. That was mostly him pushing that, I think, early on. I thought it was an easy way to get a hit was to just, you know, rock up an old standard that was a hit. And then when the song did so well, the label was like, okay, you got to put an album out around this. This is too good to miss. So then you get, I always thought of this as kind of like being like their version of New Order's Brotherhood. You had half of it that were these covers that Eddie just thought was musically vapid. He didn't really get much out of it. And then you had a, a couple of originals that he wrote that he felt good about. And I think that the song that really crystallizes these two sides is Dancing in the Street, the cover of the Martha and the Vandellas song. And the synth riff from it is taken from a totally separate song that Eddie was working on. And I guess Ted and David Lee Roth heard it and said, oh, wait, that would actually work really good under this cover. So you get this, like, you know, this song that was really going to be almost like a Peter Gabriel type song that Eddie was working on being put underneath this, you know, rocked up Motown version. And... It worked, but it was definitely, you can see the fault lines between them musically, I think on that, almost more than anything else they've done. Yeah, I wonder, like, is there going to be like a box set of like just music that Eddie Van Halen was working on at this time that never saw the light of day? Oh, wow. I, I know that he's, like, he talked about in his life about how he didn't want to put out this more experimental music that he was making because he was basically just afraid of being judged for stepping outside of his lane. And I'm really fascinated by, like, what would Eddie Van Halen's Peter Gabriel-like song that he wrote in 1981 sound like, you know? There's, yeah. There's just, like, a whole other side to him, I think, that we never got to see. Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, it will be interesting if there's, like, you know, a, a Salinger-like uh, issue of, of all sorts of stuff that he had stored away for years. That would be incredible. But back in 81, 82, uh, they go on a tour to promote Diver Down. They're really getting on each other's nerves at this point. I mean, they really haven't had much time to relax over the last three, four years. And Dave would say, you know, there's always tension with me and Edward. But then again, there's always tension between me and the freaking bus driver. But Dave, at this point, was becoming really less and less satisfied with his role in the band as basically, you know, like a performing monkey tasked with just sort of delivering Eddie's musical messages. And he was also really resentful at this point of... Eddie's sort of higher media profile, because at this point, he married Valerie Bertinelli, and suddenly all the headlines were about, you know, the rock star who married America's sweetheart. And so Dave felt even more sidelined by this. I mean, he was also not a guy who was really all that fond of the whole marriage idea anyway. So <laughs> right. he started to really act out, and this shows up probably most prominently and most famously at the Us Festival in 1983, uh, when the band got, I still find this amazing, they got $1.5 million for 75 minutes. That's incredible. I mean, insane. I mean, that's in 1983 dollars, too. Right, yeah. So, you know, what would that be now? Would that be like $3 million? Maybe even like four I'd or five millions. Like like, oh yeah. I mean, it just speaks to how huge Van Halen were, and this is before Jump comes out too. So like they were yeah. already just a huge band. And you know, most bands for getting that kind of money would you know maybe get a little nervous beforehand and and really practice a little extra and really try to give it their all. Dave shows up, uh, kind of staggering drunk, I would say, and he's like, can't remember the words to the songs in front of three hundred and fifty thousand people, and he's like. <laughs> Roaring at the, and this is where he really does his like animal from the Muppets voice. He's like roaring at the crowd. He has some like 
he like he's yelling at a guy in the front row. Hey man, don't be squirting water at me. I'm gonna fuck your girlfriend, pal. <laughs> some really good. There's some choice moments on YouTube of, of him in the middle of that show, and like a roadie brings him a bottle of Jack Daniels on stage, and it, it did he drop like a boozy boozy bop at the end of that? I'm just trying to <laughs> think of how we could make that more David Lee Roth like. Yeah. <laughs> It's incredible. I mean, for any other band, this would have been like a PR disaster. But, you know, for Van Halen, it's perfect. They are the ultimate party band. And the crowd loves it. But Eddie doesn't love it. He's a perfectionist, and he's really pissed. And I guess they go backstage to talk about an encore, and there's this huge fight back there about, about Dave's condition at the time. So that was that was a major red flag that they were heading for, uh, heading for disaster. Yeah, you know, I think... You know, we're going to talk about this more in our Van Hagar episode, but, you know, people talk about the changes in Van Halen and they really ascribe it to the lead singers. And I, I think people overlook how Eddie Van Halen himself was changing at this time. And I think that he was tiring a little bit of being perceived as, again, like this dumb party band, you know, because, again, he mm. is a genius. He's a musical virtuoso and he wants to spread his wings. And I think he was really starting to feel confined by the image that the band had because David Lee Roth was the front man. And you really start to see, I think, this develop around the time of 1984, which ends up being one of the biggest albums of Van Halen's career. Of course, it's the album that has Jump on it, Panama's on that record, Hot for Teacher. And it's a crucial album, Van Halen's history, not only because it really put them on the same, I think, strata as like Michael Jackson and and Bruce Springsteen. I mean, they really were like the hard rock version of that uh, in the mainstream. But also, this was around the time that like Eddie built his own studio called 5150, and he really started like making music on his own, and a lot of music. And sometimes he'd have Alex come over, and they would jam pretty regularly. But that us versus them dynamic that, we, that we've been talking about in this episode, I think it really gets exacerbated here, because now you know he has the ability to really just make records on his own and maybe have David Lee Roth come in at the end. And it really flares up, and we've talked about this already, but like the controversy over Jump, how David Lee Roth didn't like Jump, Ted Templeman didn't like Jump, and it had to do with this synthesizer part. And Eddie Van Halen was at the point now where he's like, okay, you're not going to tell me what to do anymore. Like, I have held back on my ambitions long enough, but I'm going to put it on this song. I think it really works. And it becomes this power struggle between him and Roth, and, and Eddie just at one point says, look, if I want to play a tuba or Bavarian cheese whistle on, on a Van Halen record, I'll do it. And it really kind of becomes like a line in the sand between him and Roth that is uh, going to end up like wrecking this lineup. I love how in Roth's biography, he calls the music from this period morose. Yeah, like what? And I, yeah, what is that? Like Panama's morose, Hot for right. Teachers morose. Like it makes no, like they're not making a Leonard Cohen record here. Yeah. Dave says his famous line from this is like, you know, you're a guitar hero. Nobody wants to see you playing keyboards. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's hard to deny just how catchy that song is. It's amazing now to really think that they would have a problem with it. It's like I was saying earlier. I mean, it's not like they were going to alienate anybody, I don't think. Although, you know, it's funny now you look back and you always hear about how like Eddie's gamble paid off. But like, was there blowback at the time from some of the more like, you know, headbanging fans that really heard the synth and said, what the hell is this crap? I mean, did they lose a lot of fans from that? I don't know if they lost a lot of fans. I think it's hard to tell because I'm sure there were people that were pissed off that they put a synthesizer on a song. And and I know like from talking with like serious Van Halen heads that like they tend to put like the first record or fair warning above 1984. And I think Jump has a lot to do with it. So they might have lost some fans, but like it's a total wash because they gained, I'm sure, millions more fans 
because they love that song. And I think it goes back again to what I was saying before that like Van Halen was a band for everybody. They were not a band just for metalheads. And I think Jump ended up being the ultimate manifestation of that. But it also, in a way, leads to the destruction because they put out this record that's a huge hit, spawns off multiple hits, but it's the beginning of the end for this lineup of the band. Yeah, I mean, they're as big as they ever are. And Dave goes to the press, I think at the end of 1984, uh, the year 1984, and he goes on MTV's liner notes. And he says, (laughs) in his incredible, he's the king of the metaphor, I have to say. Uh, Rock bands are like dogs that chase cars. They make a lot of noise and get a lot of attention, but they don't last too long. (laughs) So we'll see what happens. Uh, You know, and at this point, the Van Halen brothers are looking at Dave like a time bomb. Like, what is he going to do? What's he going to say? Like, he's going out there and saying all this stuff. He gives an interview to Billboard around the same time in early 1985. uh, And the headline is Van Halen's Roth. Maybe it's over. And it has this really kind of haunting quote uh, from Dave. He says, since my very first days with the band 11 years ago, I've always had the feeling that one day I would wake up in a cold hotel, all the rooms would be empty, and I would be stuck by a phone with a busy signal. Oh, <laughs> From man. the first day, nothing has changed. Ooh. It's brutal. That, that is cold. That is cold. And it's interesting to me that he was making overtures to the press already that yeah. Van Halen might be ending, and only because he was feeling that way. And look, if you listen to our show, you will notice <laughs> that there's a pattern where Someone in a band who's unhappy makes overtures to the press saying that, hey, I think the band is over, but only saying that because they themselves feel that way and they haven't consulted the other people in the band. And we all know how that turns out, don't we? It it always turns out the same way. The guy who is going to the press saying this stuff always ends up out of the band and the band continues and ends up having usually even greater success than they had when that person was in the band. Well, there's going to the press is bad, but then... When you have a band meeting to talk about the future, (laughs) that's talking about the future of the band discussion is just that's the end right there. I mean, and that's what happened soon after all these interviews went to press. In the spring of '85, uh, Eddie and Dave meet up to talk about what to do next. Uh, Eddie is just tired at this point. I mean, he was tired back in the Diver Down era. I mean, he 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 he's just years and years of these grueling world tours, and he's thinking, you know, maybe we could just promote, you know, do the next tour, have it be sort of a more scaled down affair. Dave's thinking, you know, this is going to be a ripoff for fans. So they're at an impasse with what to do next. Meanwhile, David Lee Roth is getting ready to put out his first solo record. It's an EP called Crazy from the Heat. Now, this ends up being a huge hit. It spawns off covers of California Girls and Just a Gigolo, Ain't Got Nobody. And to me, like, Crazy from the Heat, in a way, you could look at it as, like, an ideal solo project from the lead singer of a band. I mean, like, no band likes it when their lead singer puts out solo material because... The idea is that, like, well, if they just do what we do as a band, the public will just go to the lead singer and it'll undermine what we do and our sort of commercial viability. But, like, what David Lee Roth did, Crazy from the Heat is, like, diametrically opposed to Van Halen. I mean, there is no, yeah. I don't think there's even a, a guitar on that EP. It's all these very kind of showbizy, sticky covers that I, I think are actually, like, pretty charming. I, I love his version of Just a Gigolo. I actually think there's, like, some genuine pathos at the end of that song, like, that is kind of like a meta-commentary on, like, his own uh, persona, you know, this, like, kind of (laughs) slutty male singer who is, you know, I'm sure he didn't feel this way at the time, but, like, he was a few years away from having his downfall, essentially. And, like, I I feel like that song is almost, like, you know, prescient in that regard. 
But um, I mean, this EP ends up like being another sort of like wrench and uh, being thrown into the mess of Van Halen because like David Lee Roth also wants to make a movie called Crazy from the Heat. And there was actually like a period like where major studios were very interested in this. Of course, Van Halen was a huge band and David Lee Roth just has stars in his eyes. And he's like, you know what? I care more about this movie than the band. Maybe I'll come back to the band when I'm done making the movie, but, like, who knows? Right. I mean, it's the Helmut Newton thing all over again. Like, he wants to be front and center. And, you know, in a lot of ways, who can blame him? And he goes to Eddie and says, you know, I really want to do this movie. Will you do the soundtrack for me? <laughs> and Eddie's like, no, I'm not going to do I'm I'm tired. I also want to do our band stuff. I'm not going to do the soundtrack for your crazy movie. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, like, I'm Eddie Van then, Halen. The band right. is called Van Halen. Like, it's not called <laughs> David Lee Roth. Like, who do you think you're talking to? And that really was sort of what did it. I guess Dave said, you know, I can't work with you guys anymore. I want to do my movie. When I'm done, we'll get back together. And uh, I think they both kind of knew what that meant. I guess there were, there was a hug and some tears. And uh, and they parted. And uh, and that was really it for, for Roth and Van Halen. And, which, and you know what? After all that, the movie fell through, which I always think is, is sort of the biggest tragedy of all this. We never got to see it. I think there's some controversy in retrospect about like whether Roth was fired or whether he quit. Because like the Van Halen brothers said that David Lee Roth walked out on the band, whereas Roth has suggested that he was fired. And really, I mean, look, we don't know for sure. I tend to believe that he left. I think that David Lee Roth felt that he was the biggest star in Van Halen and that the band would not be able to succeed without him, Um, which, you know, isn't that much of a stretch. I think in 1985, 86, if you were to imagine Van Halen without David Lee Roth at the front, it just would have seemed inconceivable, even though there were other bands, you know, like Genesis or ACDC, you know, that had great success after hiring a new lead singer. It just it did seem like David Lee Roth was so endemic to, to the success of Van Halen. So yeah, I believe that he probably thought, okay, I'm killing this band by walking out, and I'll just go and do it myself, and I'll be a huge star. Right, although it's funny. I think there was the same thing with Sammy two years later about the debate about whether or not he, he said that he was fired, and they said that he walked out too. So that's that's interesting how that ends up replaying itself two years later. Yeah, there's a real, like, it's, again, lead singer disease just running rampant. <laughs> In the Van Halen camp. <laughs> so they keep quiet about this for a while, maybe just to see if, you know, Dave would ever, you know, come back. Uh, so for a couple months, they end up keeping quiet about any, any you know, major changes in Van Halen uh, until uh, June 86. And uh, Eddie's talking in the press again. Now, he, and he t- overall, Eddie's been very quiet in the press, I would say, about, you know, his feelings towards Dave. I mean, David's definitely like, the, you know, the quote machine here. Uh, but he's talking about tensions, about how there were times when it was so stressful in Van Halen that he even considered quitting. But they finally make the big announcement in mid-August in a Rolling Stone interview where Eddie says, you know, the band, is, you know it, is over. Dave left to be a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> and fairly quickly, Sammy Hagar ends up in the band. I think, like, wasn't his first performance with Van Halen just like a few months later? Yeah, was it like, I think it was in September 86 at Farm Aid, which is... An interesting place to imagine that, like, Van Hagar makes their debut at Farm Aid. Yeah, and look, we're, we'll get into that more next week about how he ended up in the band and, like, because there were other lead singers that they had approached at that time. It could have been someone else other than Sammy Hagar. But, yeah, they turn into Van Hagar, and then meanwhile, David Lee Roth is shaking his spandex behind on his own. And for a while, I think he was pretty successful. Yeah, I mean, he's got two really good albums in the late 80s, Eat Him and Smile and Skyscraper. And they're a lot like his EP. I mean, they're blending rock and roll with this really kind of eccentric mix of lounge and jazz. I mean, he, he covers That's Life and the uh, 
the garage rock staple, Tobacco Road, that the Nashville teens did in the 60s. And I love that side of him. I just got to say, even that little, like, soft shoe bit in the Hot for Teacher video when, like, he's out front under the disco ball and, like, a suit. I, like, I just, I, I like when he's trying to be, like, Sammy Davis Jr. I always really enjoy that side of him. So, yeah, he had that side. But then he also did have this side on those records where he was trying to kind of replicate Van Halen in its prime. Like, he hired Steve Vai to be his guitar player, who was, like, a younger version of Eddie Van Halen. On bass, he hired this guy named Billy Sheehan, who was known as the Eddie Van Halen of bass. And there was actually like a period in the early 80s, like where Eddie Van Halen thought about like getting rid of Michael Anthony and putting Billy Sheehan in the band uh, just because he thought like, oh, this is a guy that can really keep up with me. So it did seem like David Lee Roth was trying to build a new version of Van Halen, essentially. And when you hear songs like Just Like Paradise and uh, Yankee Rose, you know, like the big singles from those albums, they are really infectious and fun. And again, like I enjoy those albums. But one thing I think that's clear, like when you watch the videos for those records, is that David Lee Roth was getting old pretty quickly. You know what I mean? Like, like there was a certain period of time like where he could get away again with like wearing the spandex, doing the karate moves, like jumping off of the drum riser, doing all those David Lee Roth antics. But like once you get into your 30s and you're starting to approach 40, you can't pull that off as much anymore. Not saying that he couldn't physically pull it off, but just you start to look a little ridiculous. And of course, the music scene was starting to change as well. Of course, like in the late 80s, that was the prime of like Poison and Winger and Warrant and all of these bands that were trying to be Van Halen. But, you know, pretty soon we're going to get into the 90s. And like that glam rock stuff is not going to work at all. And I think, you know, and we'll talk about this more next week, but I think when we talk about the Van Hagar era, you know, as much as people malign that era, and, and again, I don't think it's as good as the David Lee Roth years, but I think in a way, like, Roth left Van Halen at exactly the right time. Because yeah. I really don't know how Van Halen would have evolved with David Lee Roth as the lead singer in the late 80s going into the 90s. I feel like with him at the lead, they would have inevitably become an anachronism. Just because, like, again, like, he was so much of his time and place that I don't know, like, like what does a mature David Lee Roth look like? You know, like, what does, like, an elder statesman David Lee Roth look like at the head of Van Halen. Like, it's just hard for me to conceive it. And Eddie Van Halen, he didn't want maybe David Lee Roth to leave, but by putting Sammy Hagar in, they were able to become a different kind of band, more of like an adult contemporary band in a way that I think suited who they were as they were getting older and also their audience. You know, their audience was also getting older. Uh, so it was like a forced evolution, but in a way, a lot of ways, I think it makes sense. Yeah, it was an excuse to have a fresh slate as as the music scene was changing so much. I mean, it was it gave him an excuse not to make that like, oh my god, we're gonna make our adult contemporary album now. I was like, well, we have to change our sound anyway. We have this new guy in there, so let's make those necessary adjustments and press on. And yeah, like you said, I think that Sammy, for how maligned his his tenure in the band was, I think. You know, he served not only as a replacement, but as a way forward, which worked out. I mean, we'll get into this more next week. I mean, four number one albums. I mean, he definitely was successful. I think one mistake that Sammy Hagar made, and I'll delve more into this next week, but he didn't like singing David Lee Roth songs. He was very sort of like wary of like delving into the early records. And I think in a way that was a mistake because it created this sense of longing for that era that I think people would have had anyway. But it's like, even if you loved Van Hagar, 
Like you couldn't go to their show and hear Ain't Talking About Love or Unchained. And I think over time, it just created this sense of anticipation for like Van Halen getting back together with David Lee Roth, uh, which you could see pretty much as soon as Sammy Hagar gets kicked out of the band. Like he leaves in 96 and already people are like, when's David Lee Roth coming back? Right. It seems like, I mean, from the stories that Sammy's told, as soon as Sammy takes a walk, they're on the phone to Dave. And it comes about in a really kind of like, in a, in a way that one wouldn't expect. They have a, a greatest hits compilation due out and uh, and they want to make some new songs for it. So Eddie calls up Dave and wants to know if he wants to uh, to make some new music for it. So they meet up at 5150 Studios, apparently without warning Alex and Michael Anthony that, he, that Diamond <laughs> Dave was due to show back up, which I love. Look who I ran into. Right, <laughs> yeah. Look. Yeah, he's just going to come by and, uh, and sing some tracks. And they, they have two new songs, can't get this stuff no more. And me wise magic. Uh, fine. I mean, I think most fans are thinking that this is basically a dry run for a full fledged, like real reunion. I mean, those songs. What do you think of those songs? I think of them as like kind of like the Beatles, like free as a bird, real love type. Like, okay, it's it's they're here. If me wise magic tapped me on the shoulder and said, "My name is me wise magic," I would still not know what it was. I I, I do not remember those songs remotely. Me Wise Magic, maybe one of the worst song titles, maybe the worst song yeah. title in the Van Halen canon. But yeah, you're right. It was like, it didn't really matter what those songs were. It was, they were taken as signifiers that like David Lee Roth was going to be back into the fold. Right. And that something bigger and better was coming. But unfortunately, before that could happen, there was the VMAs. We love the VMAs <laughs> yes. on the show. Oh. We really do. Yes. And so many is, great moments. Is, yes. Oh my God. This one is, is 1996. Uh, Van Halen plus Roth are on stage. Uh, they're presenting an award to Beck, I believe. And before they do so, Roth gets in front of the mic and he's definitely going off script. You can see Eddie and Alex looking at each other with just pure fear in their eyes. And Dave says, we have an announcement to make. We have to address a subject here. This is the first time we've actually stood on stage together in over a decade. And he's just like really just like riling the crowd up. And Eddie and Alex like, no, no, stop. this is not what we're here to do. Please, we're here to just give this nice guy back his award. And they give him his Moon Man trophy, and Dave's just in the background as he's giving his acceptance speech, just like grinning dementedly and dancing around, and uh, really embarrasses the band. Yeah, you know, look, if you haven't seen this clip, you got to go on YouTube and see this clip. <laughs> David Lee Roth looks like a poodle that has just ingested an entire case of, like, Surge soda, you know? <laughs> he's just hopping up and down. He's going nuts. And you can just see, like, in real time, Eddie Van Halen being just so annoyed with David Lee Roth to the point of, like, genuine anger. And that really spills over backstage because, you know, they're, they're talking to the press and, uh, you know, David Lee Roth is, like, in his element because he's, like, been in the wilderness for, like, a decade. Like, while Van Halen has gone on and just sold millions of records, David Lee Roth's career has fallen apart. You know, and he's, like, you know, playing, like, backwater casinos, essentially, at this point. So he's just thrilled that he's, like, back on MTV. He's a star again. And Eddie Van Halen, you know, starts talking about his hip because he was having hip issues at the time and, you know, thinking about getting surgery. And David Lee Roth basically says, no one wants to hear about your fucking hip. This is my moment. And Eddie Van Halen is, like, like cool for, like, a little bit. But, again, he's thinking, wait a second. Like, I'm Eddie Van Halen. Like, this is my band. I'm the genius here. And he says to David Lee Roth at one point, he's like, look, if you ever speak to me like that again, you better be wearing a cup. <laughs> That's his <laughs> quote. And, Amazing. You know, and it's, like, not totally clear, like, if, like, let's say this doesn't happen. Like, would have would David Lee Roth had, have joined Van Halen in 1996, like, if they had, like, a, a smoother rollout at the VMAs? Like, I'm not totally clear on that. I 
I don't know if they just did that for publicity or if this was something that kind of blew up because David Lee Roth was like such a jackass on this show. But soon after the awards, Van Halen announces that their third lead singer is going to be Gary Sharon of the band Extreme. And look, moment of silence for Gary Sharon, by the way, who by all accounts is like a really nice guy. Eddie Van Halen has talked about how like when they were writing songs together for the album that ended up being Van Halen 3, he was like, oh, this guy's like my brother. Like, I love this guy. Like, he, he he's such a nice guy. But I think really, th- like, through no fault of his own, like, it's the height of hubris to think that you could bring in a third guy. And the <laughs> public is going to accept that. It's pretty amazing that they were able to put Sammy Hagar in and have so much success. But, like... Pulling that again. Yeah, you, putting in a third guy, you know, like, I think Genesis tried that, too. Like, when Phil Collins left, they put in a third guy, they made one record, and then they were done. You know, it's like, you can't do that three times. You can't pull the hat trick with three lead singers. So yeah, they put out Van Halen 3 and of course that record flew into a black hole never to be heard from again. I don't know if I've ever actually heard that album from beginning to end. Like it doesn't really even register as like a real Van Halen record. It just seems like uh, something that supposedly happened 22 years ago and then everyone involved decided we're not going to acknowledge this ever again. We'll walk away and you know, just live our lives believing that Van Halen 3 doesn't actually exist. I sat down and listened to it for for this show. And, you know, I, I always viewed it as sort of like Gary Sharon is sort of the George Lazenby of Van Halen. George Lazenby was the guy who played Bond once and then never again. And everyone, you know, shits on him. But you actually sit down and watch that Bond movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It's not bad. Van Halen 3, not as bad as I expected. Not as bad as its reputation makes it out to be. Am I going to play it again? No. But, uh, you know, it's it's... It's better than I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he claimed that he had been asked to join Van Halen before Dave was back for the 96 Greatest Hits set. So I guess that was something that was like prearranged before Dave was even in the picture too, which is which is interesting that the, according to him at least, that they wouldn't just go back with Dave full time. They already were like, okay, well, we need a third guy. <laughs> Absolutely. We definitely can't have Dave back in full time. Yeah, and I know David Lee Roth was like really upset about that. He felt like he was stabbed in the back. So, you know, Van Halen with Gary Sharon, David Lee Roth is upset. Sammy Hagar is also upset, and we'll get into that more next week, of course. So several years down the road, these guys decided that they're gonna do a tour together. And like we don't have a ton of time to get into that, but like it's so hilarious to me because I think they looked at it from very different perspectives. I think Sammy Hagar, who by all accounts is like a very easygoing guy, seems like people seems awesome. Yeah, they yeah, he's you know, he's wearing flip-flops and drinking tequila all day. You know, like how can you get bad at Sammy Hagar? Whereas David Lee Roth is more maybe like a standoffish, almost like a loner type. Like on this tour, I think Sammy thought, like, oh, we're gonna do duets together. We're going to like kind of meld these two eras of Van Halen and people are going to have a great time. And David Lee Roth was like much more sort of standoffish and like wouldn't even get on stage with Sammy Hagar. He thought it was like a WWF thing. Like, he thought that <laughs> they, they were competing with their sets as opposed to like, no, we're doing a co-tour here. Which, yeah. And I mean, that whole tour, I mean, it's just hilarious to me. <laughs> these two guys. Yeah, Hagar even said it was purely just, the quote was, it was just to piss off Eddie and Alex and get the Van Halen fans worked up. I mean, which is amazing. It makes it all so much better. Exactly. Although, like, the, I think the tour did pretty well. Like, they were playing, like, amphitheaters. And, I, again, it just speaks to, like, how desperate people were for Van Halen music at this time. Because really, after Van Halen 3, like, Eddie Van Halen went into this, like, hibernation period where, based on, like, various accounts, like, he was just, like, taking, like, pulls from, like, wine bottles all day for, like, three or yeah. four years. Like, that was his life. So this was sort of the best thing that fans had 
Uh, great for fans, not great for Sammy and, and Dave together. Uh, they ended up basically hating each other by the end of the tour. And I think Sammy said something like, you know, I don't like to really say that I ever regret anything, but uh, came pretty damn close on that tour. So uh, so that was probably the end of the uh, of a Sammy-Dave uh, tour that we'll ever have again. And, you know, the, the dysfunction of Van Halen, it just continues. Like, they, they had that reunion with Sammy Hagar in 2004 that went off the rails. And, you know, we'll get into that more later on. And then they end up getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in, in 2007. Normally a great honor for a band, but it ends up really just shining a spotlight on how messed up things are in Van Halen at this point. Right. I mean, it's sort of, a, you almost expect nothing less from, if Van Halen's going to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you kind of expect it to be a shit show. <laughs> Eddie and Alex don't come, they say in the beginning, I think Eddie was going through uh, treatment at that time uh, for alcoholism. So I think that was the reason that they said they weren't going to come. Uh, Dave was going to perform with, I think, Velvet Revolver, and they couldn't agree on a song choice, so he ended up walking like a couple days before. So the only two people who actually were there to, to receive the induction from Van Halen were Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony. This was in 2007, at the time when neither of them were actually in the band at that time, which I just think is very fitting. Yeah, you know, the Michael Anthony thing. I think we're going to talk more about Michael Anthony next week. I mean, that is such a sad story to me. Oh, my God. Because you know, no. we've barely talked about Michael Anthony so far because he's never had a fight with anybody. Like, there's no, no. rivalry that Michael Anthony's ever been involved in, uh, at least where it was two-sided. I mean, like, as far as I could tell, like, the, the Van Halen brothers, for whatever reason, they hate Michael Anthony or they came to hate him. And I don't understand why. He just seems like the most easygoing guy in the world. You know, Sammy has his uh, tequila Michael Anthony has his, like, whiskey and, like, hot sauce. You know, like, that's his big thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, whiskey and hot sauce guy, how can you be mad at him? But when Van Halen do their reunion tour in 2007 and they end up bringing David Lee Roth in the fold, Michael Anthony isn't there because Eddie wants to use his son Wolfgang to play bass. And it's hilarious to me because Wolfgang is the one who had the idea to invite David Lee Roth into the band. And, like, Eddie actually made Wolfgang call him, which is... <laughs> like you know, so Wolfgang much. was what? He was like maybe like 13, 14 years old at the time. Yeah, he was a kid. He was so nervous that he scripted out the call like beforehand. Like he was asking someone on a date or something. Like, hi Dave, my name's Wolfgang Van Halen. I'm the new van bass player in Van Halen. We've been jamming lately. We were wondering if you wanted to come and jam and maybe go on tour. Give me a call. Like it's like, like Eddie, really I don't know sweet. if he was just like sitting by the phone and like if he thought this was hilarious, or you just thought like I'm gonna throw my kid in the deep yeah. end of the pool. But like David Lee Roth. You know, maybe because he was charmed by Wolfgang or because he really had nothing else better to do, he ends up accepting the invitation. They go on this reunion tour. They put out a record, the first record with David Lee Roth and Van Halen since 1984. Uh, it's called Different Kind of Truth. That comes out uh, in 2012. Actually, like a pretty good record. There's a lot of songs on there that I, I think derive from like that mid-70s, like, songwriting batch that they did like uh, they produced all these demos a lot of the songs ended up on the first van halen record some of those songs like ended up on like subsequent van halen records i think like that song top of the world that's on for unlawful carnal knowledge uh the sammy hagar record um i think that also derives from that time or at least it derives from like like the roth era oh, from too. but at any rate they reunite with david lee roth but again like it's not like oh, we're best pals with David Lee Roth. It, it, it's just like it was at the beginning of the band. It's very much a marriage of convenience. They bring him back in because they know that's what the fans want, and it works. Like, they go on these multiple tours, and they do extremely well with David Lee Roth. Right, they do one in 2013 and 2015, and Eddie gives an interview to Billboard where he says, you know, Dave has no interest in being my friend. Uh, and then he teases him for basically still acting like he's 20-year-old David Lee Roth, coloring his hair and jumping around on stage. He says, you know, you're, we're in our 60s. 
act like you're 60. Uh, so yeah, like you said, they were never really uh, simpatico, but, uh, but they had a, a last gig together. It was almost five years, almost to the day before uh, Eddie died. It was a hometown gig in, in Hollywood. They kind of made amends on stage, which was, was sweet. I think uh, Dave had some nice things to say about him. The best years of my life, the high points of my life, we're all on stage with you. Uh, so that was a, a nice way for fans to sort of remember the two of them. Yeah, it's a nice moment. You you never know like how genuine those moments are. Uh, it, you know, is there some like sort of theatricality going on with that? I mean, because again, like reunion tours always have that little like, okay, we're actually friends right, now moment which, in the concert. I think especially in this case, like no one's going to really believe. But again, you know, that's okay. Again, did you see that tour at all? I, I never saw them with David Lee Roth. No. Oh, like, I've I heard good did, things. No. I mean, I heard it was like a pretty fun show. But yeah, like you said, they played that show in October of 2015. It ends up being the last show that they play together. And four years later, uh, David Lee Roth does an interview where he basically says that Van Halen is done. And like, they're never going to tour again. I wonder to what degree he knew about Eddie Van Halen's illness. Like if it was already clear that, you know, Eddie was in a bad way and he wasn't probably going to be able to perform again. I'm guessing he said something about how like Eddie's got his own story to tell. It's not mine to tell it. So I'm guessing that there that he must have known something there that he, he didn't really want to get into. That's my guess, at least. And then, of course, Eddie Van Halen, he passes away in October of 2020. And Dave's reaction is, like, low-key but respectful. You know, he posts some photos of them on his social media account, and he says, what a long, great trip it's been. So not overly effusive, but, you know, he's uh, not saying anything disrespectful at the end. Yeah, at least he's not pretending either, you know, like. It is what it is. That's the perfect thing I think he could have said at that moment, given their relationship. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode where we talk about the pro side for each side of the rivalry. Let's talk about David Lee Roth first. Now, look, Diamond Dave, he's one of the most unique frontmen ever in rock history. Uh, like we said before, like, he's not really a singer. He's like more of a personality. But like, I think he's a lot smarter than he gets credit for. Like, I would liken him to someone like Freddie Mercury, who also had this like sort of knowing winking sense of his own ridiculousness. Like when you watch David Lee Roth on stage, you always <laughs> feel like he's in on his own joke, you know? Uh, whereas Sammy Hagar, which we'll get into, I don't think ever had that. Like, there's no irony at all to Sammy Hagar. Uh, there's this great quote that David Lee Roth has where he said, I want it to be the art project, not just wear one. You know, and I think there is sort of a, a performance <laughs> artist aspect to his career that adds like a layer on top of just like the fun party band image. Um, but yeah, his sense of humor combined with Eddie Van Halen's peerless technique it really was the magic combination of this band. And I think it's like why people love this lineup so much. It just gave Van Halen that perfect combination of chops and fun that makes Van Halen Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, watching those videos for like Panama or Hot for Teacher or Jump, I mean, I, I get the same feeling that I get when I watch like the scenes of like the Beatles running <laughs> right. in you know, Hard Day's Night, where it's just they look like they're having exactly. the time of their lives. Like they can't believe this is happening. It, it's, you know, they're just so joyful and exuberant. But also the sense of inclusivity. It's like, yeah, come on, like come and join the fun. And that's and and Dave really sums that up. I mean, I know that he has this reputation. I think Rolling Stone called him at one point like the most obnoxious singer in human history, an achievement notable in the face of long tradition and heavy competition. But you're right, he just he puts the fun in Van Halen. And and also too, like I thought that him covering California Girls was a really interesting uh choice for him because I always saw him as sort of like carrying on the California myth that the Beach Boys kind of started, the sort of like fun in the sun party thing. I always felt like he carried it through to the 80s. And I felt like by doing that, he kind of like owned that mantle of like the California party guy. And his most of his lyrics, I think he was responsible for most of the lyrics in the band, um, really, I think, are it definitely something that I think he was responsible for. And, uh, you know, that is, it's the fun. Like I said, it's just really like that sensibility comes from him, I think. And, uh, yeah, no, he's one of those remarkable front men. Yeah, I mean, love, your love comparison Rob. to the Beach Boys, I think, is very apt. Because I know as someone, you know, myself, growing up in the Midwest, you listen to Van Halen and you're like, you feel so much FOMO listening to that band. Like, like why couldn't I yeah. have lived in Southern California in the late 70s and early 80s? It just seems like such a fun place to be and like Van Halen's music just personifies that. Going over to the pro Eddie Van Halen side, I mean, look, we're going to have lots of nice things to say about Eddie Van Halen in both of these episodes, but in the context specifically of his relationship with David Lee Roth, I think, again, you have to give him props for keeping his band together after Roth left. 
You know, like I know that like Eddie Van Halen and Alex Van Halen, they would both get annoyed when people would define the band uh, by the lead singers, you know, and split it up into different eras. Because as far as they were concerned, there was only one Van Halen, you know, and it is interesting if you think about Van Halen, I think and I think this is the proper way to look at them as a vehicle for Eddie Van Halen, not for the lead singers. And it's like, yeah, people come and go, but it's my music. I'm the one writing it. I'm the general of this band. And the fact that he was able to carry on with Sammy Hagar just totally reiterates that. And look, we, we've we seen other examples of this in rock history of bands losing an iconic frontman and still carrying on. But few have been as successful as Van Halen. And as much as some people don't like the Van Hagar era, and we're going to get into this next week, that's still like a really popular era of the band. And I think that there are some attributes of that period that the Roth era doesn't have, even though I think David Lee Roth is better overall. But again, it must be reiterated that this was Eddie Van Halen's band, and I think he proved it after Roth left. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lesser creative force would have totally buckled after losing the guy who was, you know, in all practical senses, his musical partner is on stage and, and in some cases, in a lesser extent, in the studio. And I think it's interesting that I guess there was an early period right after uh, Dave left where I guess someone at the label suggested maybe having like a revolving door of different vocalists, which is an insane idea, and I'm really glad they didn't do that. But I think that speaks to the idea of, no, this is a project based around Eddie's music and not through any, you know, not through any charismatic front man. And, uh, you know, in addition to just genius, genius level musicianship, incredible composer and arranger, I mean, yeah, he, he was the vision for that. So band. if we look at these two guys together, I think we've already hit upon this, but this is the key partnership in maybe the greatest American hard rock band ever. I mean, it's hard for me to think of a better hard rock band from America than Van Halen. And it's all due to the elements that both of these guys were able to bring to the table. David Lee Roth's showmanship and sense of humor and Eddie Van Halen's ability to write great music in his incredible guitar playing. I think if it was too far in one direction, if it was too shticky, Van Halen wouldn't have worked. If it was too like serious, sort of like a muso type band, I don't think it would have worked either. These two guys, even though they didn't yeah. like each other, they were they had an incredible chemistry artistically. Yeah, I mean, you have the virtuoso and the entertainer and the rock star and the rock musician. It wouldn't have been Van Halen without either one of them. Yes. Well, actually it would be because we have another lead singer coming up next week <laughs> named Sammy Hagar <laughs> in a band called Van Hagar. And I'm very excited to talk about that. But, you know, for now, I could say if we look at the relationship between David Lee Roth and Van Halen, you ain't talking about love in this dynamic. <laughs> there it is. There it is. I was waiting for it. Yes. My favorite part of the episode, folks, Stephen's incredible song puns that I choose to believe that you're coming up with them off the dome right now. Pretty much. I mean, would you say that you jumped for joy when you uh, heard that? <laughs> all right, I'm sorry. All right. I got to quit while I'm ahead. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Rivals. We will be back with more beefs and feuds and long swimming resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstack. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.